How can real estate investing in opportunity zones create triple bottom line returns? And what are the best ways to measure the social impact? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Want to learn more about Opportunity Zones and network with other professionals? Come to the Opportunity Zone Super Conference in Dallas, April 3 through 4. Visit ozdfw.com to learn more and buy tickets, and use promo code OPPORTUNITYDB to save an additional 25%. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. The Minnesota Opportunity Zone Advisors recently launched their Dream Fund, a qualified opportunity fund targeting community-driven economic, social, and environmental impact. And today I'm joined by their project pipeline manager, Lauren Sherber. He joins us from his office in St. Paul, Minnesota. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate your time. Uh, so let's, I want to talk to you about the Dream Fund. Can you tell me more about it? What is it and, and uh, where are you guys investing? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, we're up here in uh, Fridgen, Minnesota. Um, uh, the heart of the north up here, and um, we're investing across the state of Minnesota in the metropolitan area as well as in greater Minnesota. Um, the DREAM Fund is uh, an acronym for Developing Real Estate in Emerging Areas Across Minnesota. So we hope that uh, our investments help to make these areas emerge and prosper, and uh, that's kind of a, a little bit of an overview on us. Good, yeah, and I'll... I'll dive into that a little bit more with you in a minute. I'll ask you some, some follow-up questions so you can give me some more detail. But uh, first, I want to get some of your background. Where did you come from, Lauren? And, uh, and how did you get your start? And what's been your career trajectory that's taken you to working with the Minnesota Opportunity Zone Advisors? Sure. Um, well, starting at the beginning of time, I'm, I'm from Minneapolis. Um, grew up in this city um, and um, ended up going to college in North Dakota and Grand Forks and got a business degree in marketing and entrepreneurship and worked a couple of years in the corporate world. Ended up deciding to uh, get my MBA and uh, joined my dad's remodeling business, Castle Building and Remodeling, uh, about 16 years ago. So I worked uh, a lot in the construction industry and used my MBA um, from the University of Minnesota to help grow the family construction business and um, got a business partner there and opened four showrooms and grew from five to 40 employees. And so I worked in residential construction uh, and older houses, um, kind of in the rehab and, and renovation of um, residential over the last um, 15 years. But about five years ago, I got involved with a neighborhood uh, group, a cooperative that was uh, taking investors at $1,000 um, to invest in commercial real estate. And so I got involved and joined the board of the Northeast Investment Cooperative. And we've done a few commercial renovations, and that uh, piqued my interest about development and um, kind of fundraising and managing a, a fund of capital. And so uh, we kind of work on the small side where we've got, uh, after five years, uh, two properties and about a half a million dollars in community investment. And so um, 
I ultimately uh, bought a piece of land um, on the east side of St. Paul where I was working on developing a cooperative tiny home village. And then the Opportunity Zones uh, legislation came along. Um, I had met Jamie Stoppelstadt, my partner, uh, who's worked more on the, the big institutional side of investing in real estate, managing billions of dollars at a time. So we kind of married the two together. And um, he had a development in an Opportunity Zone, and I had a development in an Opportunity Zone. And we said, we should create a multi-asset fund that maybe could fund our projects, but could fund projects across the state and help people get this tax benefit, but achieve a triple bottom line at the same time. So that's oh, that's the history of the world, or my world anyways, the last 40 years. So That's great. No, thanks for that level of detail on your background. So you and Jamie, your partners, you mentioned you both just happened to own some property in these opportunity zones. That was kind of a, a happy accident, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Uh, where we said, my yeah, mine's in an opportunity zone and yours is in an opportunity zone. And isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's that. That is interesting. When when did you first learn of the program? I know the the legislation was released at the end of 2017, and the zones were designated the following summer, uh, July, I believe, was when they were certified by the uh, by the Treasury Department. When did when did you pick up on on the program? About the time that the zones were certified. Yeah. yeah. What a pleasant surprise that must have been for you. So you spoke about having impact and delivering impact to the state of Minnesota and these local communities. And I get a sense that you have some passion for, for delivering that, that local impact. How are you doing that? And how, how are you engaging with the local community to ensure that you're delivering impact? Yeah. Um, well, we're really um, trying to get out into the community um, and meet with the leaders of these communities um, through, we've done a, a series of seminars kind of in partner with partnership with a few nonprofits like LISC uh, helped support our first one, um, as well as McKnight and the St. Paul Foundation. We took that content um, where we met with and presented opportunity zones to community developers and developers of color um, associated with LISC in the Twin Cities area. Um, you know, kind of presented on Opportunity Zones, had a panel, got different perspectives and opinions on how it was going to be used, um, how communities could get ready for it, how they could steer it, how they could have social impact or ensure that it uh, was favorable to their communities. And took that and kind of went around the state with the initiative foundations. But at this point, we've had four of these seminars that are half-day seminars and had about 200 community leaders, bankers, um, accountants, um, local investors, um, city administrators, HRA people, uh, economic development folks come to these conferences, learn about them, ask questions, figure out how to position and market their communities um, to attract outside capital or local capital or to decide if uh, people want to create their own funds. Um, or work with another fund. And so it's been a great process, to, um, exciting to get out and um, meet with the community folks, drive around the towns, um, look and see what areas look like they're in need of reinvestment and talk to those, you know, find out about projects and then go to those cities and get a tour and drive around and find out what's happening and who's opening new plants and, you know, why there's housing needed or when the last time housing was built or, you know, what historic properties sitting empty and be bought out of steel. Um, so it's uh, it's been 
really just a matter of getting out and driving around um, and and looking for those, listening to what the communities uh, have and need and want. Yeah. Seeing where there's overlap. Yeah, actually uh, hitting the street and talking to the local communities. So uh, do you have any specific lessons or examples of lessons that, that you've learned along the way about about these communities and what they are looking for and and what they feel are the most effective ways to create impact? Um, yeah, no, I've got a good example. I think um, uh, I've got a project I'm working on in Brainerd, Minnesota. And I originally went there and met with the head of um, the HRA, um, the Housing Authority, who does a lot of the economic development. And they had a specific project in mind that was kind of complex and involved putting several parcels together and taking out a building that had a three or four year lease on it, but was empty, but was high, had a high value. Um, and, you know, they have a huge initiative to revitalize their downtown. And this is part of that. Um, but ultimately, after driving around the town and talking about, well, here's a cool old building, or here's a historic old building, or how much do you think they'd sell that for? Um, and them saying, you know, 250 grand, maybe? Um, you know, you start to go, well, if your goal is to revitalize downtown, you know, like maybe you shouldn't be so sold on any one of these projects, um, but look at, you know, what's the lowest hanging piece of fruit, or how can we attract developers to this building or that building, or, um, you know, hit a single or a double instead of trying to hit this home run. Uh, and maybe the home run comes, you know, two or three years down the road because these opportunity zones will be here for a while. Um, and go back to that one once the lease runs out and the value falls way down. So, I would say that um, it it just takes some creativity, um, you know, and takes thinking like an investor or thinking, uh, you know, looking at a lot of different possibilities. And there there aren't a ton of these shovel ready projects out there in opportunity zones. It takes some creativity to put them together and find the tenants and make it all work. Yeah, it definitely can take a lot of work to find the right projects and the right tenants. Absolutely. Your focus is on delivering a triple bottom line strategy. You alerted, you alluded to it earlier, and uh, those returns being economic returns, social returns, and environmental returns. Could you drill down into each of those specific types of returns and and what you're doing to create those returns and and what types of returns exactly you're looking for? Sure. Yeah. Um... Well, to start out with, the economic side is pretty simple. Um, we're basically running a private equity fund uh, that invests in real estate in the state of Minnesota within you know, certain geographic uh, census tracts uh, that are tax advantaged. And so, um, you know, besides trying to get an economic return for our investors, um, which we shoot for around uh, 8% after fees or about a 10% IRR, um, we are trying to create an economic incentive or improvement to the local community. And so that might be through the creation of local jobs or construction jobs or ongoing operations. Um, and also in how we hire, of hiring local uh, architecture, engineering, construction firms. Um, and so the economic impact is um, fairly easy on the one side of how well does this perform for investors. It's a little harder to measure on the social side of the trickle down or the um, that side of things the second one being social impact um, our goal is to um, or, or we've made a commitment not to um, displace residents and so 
our goal is really to be additive to communities to take properties that are empty and to improve them make substantial rehabilitations um, investments to them and attract new people to communities and so that limits our properties a little bit, but it fits really well, actually, with the intentions of the Opportunity Zone lie and with the actual IRS regulations um, and the need for substantial investment. So, um, you know, additionally, we're looking at a whole lot of partnerships with um, local nonprofits um, and other groups that can have a social impact on our residents or work in conjunction with um, multifamily housing development so we put together and it could be simple as as simple as you know um, enhanced recycling benefits or um, a shared electric vehicle that's also available to the community or a community garden that's also available to the community and so we really look at how do we create uh, developments that have community aspects um, and intentionally bring people together uh, within spaces and so we like projects that have those elements and um, try to pursue those. And then the third piece uh, being environmental returns might actually be the easiest to measure. There's quite a few different systems for measuring, you know, LEED certification or net zero um, scoring systems, basically. Um, the general overall, you know, they usually have uh, four or five categories and, and kind of look at the energy consumption, um, you know, how much stuff are you reusing versus building new? Um, you know, what are the environmental impacts of those materials uh, as far as off-gassing or the inhabitants of those buildings and um, two other categories? And so that's a little bit easier. We can programmatically encourage um, elements to be added and and uh, in all of our developments by having partners who say bring in solar or bring in electric vehicle charging stations. So we're looking at plug-and-play partners that can add on to developments or and and um, handle tax benefits and and add value to projects um, without making it much much harder for our developers. So I'd say that that's kind of a synopsis of the triple line triple bottom line strategy. And no one project's going to have um, everything or be perfectly aligned in the middle of um, exactly perfect, but um, trying to get as close to that center of hitting on all of those elements is, is our goal anyways. That's great. I'm glad you brought up measurement because a, a measurement's become a pretty big topic here these last few weeks, especially since at the IRS hearing in Washington, D.C. last month, uh, so many of the speakers brought up the desire to have some sort of reporting requirement or at least some sort of measurement framework for to to measure the success of the program, and I just want to get your thoughts on that. And I know that the environmental part is pretty easy, but how do you how do you measure the the social impact of of the of this program and of your fund specifically? Are you doing anything, or are you staying attuned to that desire by by some in in the Opportunity Zones ecosystem? Yeah, we are. Um just kind of through setting up a, a Google um, alert. Uh, we're getting out quite a few um, hits on different systems or groups that are trying to trying to codify that a little bit or create checklists or frameworks for 
socially responsible developments. So, yeah, we, we struggle a little bit in that we, we have read up on it, understand it, are trying to hit that um, point, but also kind of realize that to be legitimate and um, acceptable, accepted, um, we probably are going to need a third-party verification or, or some kind of system out there that is more like a lead certification. Not saying that the government's going to necessarily require that, because right now there's there's not a whole lot of anything built in uh, to the law that actually re you know requires re any kind of reporting or scoring or anything. I do um, believe that it would be beneficial, and it would be probably the least you could ask people to do in return for a giant tax break um, was to you know fill out some kind of form or check some boxes or um, disclose at least the level of um, you know social impact they think their project's going to have. Um, but that gets hairy. It does. It does. Yeah. And I, I know that that was never written into the, uh, well, it wasn't written into the, to the final legislation that ended up passing. I think, I think some sort of reporting requirement may have been in the original draft legislation, but didn't get, didn't get passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at the end of 2017. So now we're left with, okay. with a more, I guess, a, um, a system with with a lot less oversight, which has its pros and cons. Of course, it's a lot more flexible and open to to different types of investments and systems, and eliminates a lot of the bureaucracy. But I guess it's a it's a double edged sword, right? You get get uh, there's pros and cons. I guess is what I'm trying to say there. So, um, and I agree with you. I don't know that the government's ever going to require it, just because it um, you know it's not required in the legislation. But maybe some some private sector frameworks will will start appearing and and it'll be interesting to see what the IRS has to say here uh, as they get ready to release the final regulations pretty soon uh you know I, I think at a minimum like uh more like a, a benefit corporation has to file an annual report mm -hmm. um not a super complicated you know maybe a one or two page report that uh says you know here is at least our intended social impacts and what we did um you know because Otherwise, I think we're going to have at least um, at least having that in the public realm or in the public light would be would be good. Um, I think, you know, the, the open market will ultimately decide if for, if funds like ours that have a triple bottom line, but not the highest possible return are where they want to park their money and, and make an impact um, in multiple ways or if they'll go for. The project that was already going to happen that just happens to be in an opportunity zone that gets them an extra 400 to 500 basis points, um, you know, as a single asset fund or builds a hotel by the Mall of America when we're already going to have a hotel by the Mall of America. You know? Right. And there will be there will be investments like that that take advantage of the of the program and aren't really contributing um, the way that the program promised that. Uh, that it would, and that it would create transformational economic impact in distressed communities around the country. So yeah, you know, not not everything would pass um, the the smell test, I guess, for lack of a better term. And uh, yeah, it will, it will be interesting to see if there's any any sort of reporting requirement or or data transparency that's that's required. And if there is, it, I I hope it is something a little bit simple, like you suggest, and and doesn't isn't too onerous on the uh, on the fund managers. Yeah, you could have a situation where it's a six month review process, like historic tax credit, you know, um, 
and that would probably slow things down and make things a lot harder. But if if there was an easier way to to judge that you know this isn't just a pro, I don't you know who knows. Yeah, we'll 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 find out soon enough. I hope. Are you a fund sponsor, investor, real estate developer, or other participant in the Opportunity Zone ecosystem? I want to take this time to tell you more about the Opportunity Zone Super Conference coming to the Dallas area, April 3 through 4. I will be in attendance, and I would love to meet you there. When you attend, you'll gain skills for structuring Opportunity Zone funds, discover methods to manage tax, legal, and business issues, and meet other Opportunity Zone fund sponsors, investors, developers, and service providers. The conference features some of the most innovative Opportunity Zone fund managers in both real estate and venture investing, like Kevin Shields, CEO of Griffin Capital, and the nation's leading Opportunity Zone advocates, attorneys, and consultants, including professionals from the Federal Reserve, Baker McKenzie, and Novogratic. And for a limited time, as a listener of the Opportunity Zones podcast, you can get an additional 25% off your ticket by using promo code OPPORTUNITYDB. Head on over to OZDFW.com to learn more and buy tickets today. So you started taking capital for your dream fund only a short while ago. It was pretty recently, I think. Um, can you tell me about that process so far and who have your investors been typically and, and, and who, are you, who are you hearing? the most interest from on the on the capital raising side yeah well we did just start taking capital last week and so um our investors and the interested party so far are mostly in the real estate industry uh, that seems to be who's most aware of um, opportunity zones um but as tax season um kind of gets rolling and, and people worry about taxes and gains we're starting to get a variety of people referred to us from uh, financial advisors and CPAs um, who've heard about Opportunity Zones. Uh, they're mostly folks that, uh, not all of them who live in Minnesota, um, but a lot who are from Minnesota and want to invest um, in the Minnesota or know the state. So we're seeing a lot of local investors. Um, at the real mix, you know, uh, we've heard from folks that used to run Fortune 500 companies um, and have huge gains. And mostly, though, we've heard from folks who have, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollar gain from selling a stock or selling a business or um, selling a piece of real estate. Um, so, you know, it's all over the board. But um, we are getting a mix of people that that really want to see that triple bottom line investment too, or or make an impact. So. It's, it's been uh, fun to meet all the different types of folks that are interested. Yeah, I'm sure. Are, are you taking money from anybody, or do they have to be accredited investors? Is there is there a minimum they need to reach? There, is, yeah. Um, so we are just working with accredited investors at this time, and there's a minimum of fifty thousand um, dollars. Our goal in three to six months is to get approved as a state uh, invest approved crowdfunding portal. So we would have a separate portal login for accredited or unaccredited investors. And essentially what that will allow is people to not invest in the dream fund, uh, but to invest directly into a single project or multiple projects. And as an unaccredited investor, 
um, they'll be they could invest up to ten thousand um, dollars. The real transformational part of that um, is that it allows people to connect their four hundred one ks or IRAs through a self directed IRA, and now Alto IRA offers a pretty simple way to do that and pretty pretty low cost. And so um, people can make direct investments into a building in their community or the apartment building that they live in um, at two thousand dollars or five thousand dollars, and it's a lot more gratifying and exciting and uh, interesting and relevant than uh, the 2040 fund or, um, you know, and I'm not saying people should put all their money into it, but um, it is uh, $1,000 or $3,000 or $10,000 into a project or property that's real estate backed. And uh, we'll start to list them on there as we've been bank approved and received enough equity investment that they're fairly stable um, and a safe investment. So that's great. And that'll make uh, these, these projects a lot more accessible for folks who don't have the huge gains that they need to defer. But that, that wouldn't be, uh, that wouldn't qualify for, for the qualified opportunity fund tax treatment is, is, am I correct? No, that, that is correct. So um, if, if you can connect a 401k or a retirement savings account, you can use Mm pre-tax dollars. So that is a taxable benefit, but um, that they wouldn't actually um, qualify right. for opportunity zone. So it's better for funds that don't that don't have a deferral um, or weren't the result of a sale. Right, right. And wh- what's been your biggest challenge so far? Has it been finding money, finding investors, and raising the capital, or has it been the deal flow, finding shovel ready projects to deploy the capital into? I'd say it's like the chicken and egg nature of the two of those. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got three to four uh, shovel-ready deals that we like um, of various sizes around the state. Um, and and so we're eager to start announcing those in the next 30 days, um, or hopefully sooner. Um, I think that real estate is so tangible that that'll really help um, our investors. Um, you know, continue to commit. Um, we see that really the big crescendo of investment deadlines will come around the end of June because um, K1s or partnership docs are, are all dated 1231. And so there's this 180 day window after that. And so uh, we're really building up uh, to announce some fun, exciting, um, impactful, good returning projects uh, in the next month or two. So it's a it's a chicken and an egg where you you know the, the shovel ready projects are trying to raise capital and get going as soon as possible and if you don't have capital in the bank then they're leery to commit to working with you and so it's it's a confidence um confidence game at this point basically so I'm glad to have the experience of good partners who have, have a lot of experience so and and I would I would say too that my partner Jamie um is working more on the uh, raising capital side of things, and so he's going to conferences and meeting with family offices, and uh, has more experience. And so, I guess our goal is to raise up to a hundred million dollars, and there's the easy and hard way to do that. And so, if it comes in two million or five million dollar chunks, we get there pretty quick. If it comes in two hundred thousand or fifty thousand dollar chunks, it takes quite a bit of work. And so, it's still pretty early to know which one of those is going to happen. Right. Yeah. It's kind of 
you're, I guess you were a little bit early in the game to be able to give me a definitive answer as to whether or not the capital or the, the finding the, the projects will be um, more of the challenge. That makes sense. But <laughs> they'll, yeah. they'll both probably be challenging. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure in their own way they will be. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, that's, that's, sounds like you've got good timing there. You're right to bring up that fact that the, uh, the partnerships, investors and partnerships have 180 days beyond when they receive their K-1s. That's, that's when their 180-day clock starts ticking, just to clarify that point for, for any listeners who may not be familiar with that part of the, uh, the rules. Um, so that basically just starts their 180-day clock on December 31 of the previous year regardless of when the partnership itself recognized the gain, the partnership might've recognized the gain, you know, months and months earlier. Um, but the, the partners receiving the K one dated December 31, in most cases, like you say, have 180 days from, from that point forward. So yeah, it toward the end of June is when that clock runs out. And so, yeah, you coming up with you coming out with those, uh, those projects and getting ready to announce those around that time or a little before that time when, when this kicks into high gear, that's, that's good timing for you. Absolutely. Do you have any examples of of projects that you're willing to share with us right now that that you're looking at, or at least the uh, the types of assets or types of properties that that you're looking to invest in? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, one example um, I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier in Brainerd, Minnesota, um, we've got a letter of intent to purchase a historic uh, 1909 three story brick building. Um, it's about 80 percent empty right now, uh, except for a jeweler. Um, on the main floor who owns it and a hair salon. And so we've been working and analyzing, um, putting in a boutique hotel into this. Um, and so it actually, you know, being on the historic register uh, could qualify for some historic tax credits. It um, falls in a new market tax credit zone. So we may be able to get some assistance um, on those tax credits. And so it's a project that uh, we've got a good hotel operating partner um, who's interested in it, really interested and excited about it. And so um, that's about a three and a half, four million dollar project. Um, and uh, in a small town and in a downtown that's working hard to revitalize itself and the city itself is really excited about um, seeing some revitalization in this area. It's had some contests to attract new businesses with you know, $50,000 destination, Brainerd, uh, move your business downtown. Um, contest, Shark Tank style contest. And so there's a lot of community momentum um, and support for redevelopment in this area. And so we're excited about that project. Um, and then have a, we're really working hard on workforce housing. And so we've got a couple workforce housing projects that we're looking at in St. Paul. Um, one being um, kind of, yeah, near University in Raymond, um, four stories. Um, and then, um, so that one's moving along through due diligence and architectural drawings. Um, and we're looking at a project in Laverne, Minnesota, uh, which is in the very southwest corner. Um, that's a town square um, type concept that has housing and um, also retail, but also a kind of a unique concept of putting a, a senior housing facility in with a daycare, sharing a kitchen between those. And so it's a model that we hope is replicable across um, a few different communities and it uses green technology of um, SIPS panel construction, very energy efficient, uh, all Minnesota made products. And so we're, we're moving forward with a few projects and um, should be able to announce 
more details soon. Good. Yeah, I'll look forward to those announcements. And so it sounds like you're doing a lot of a lot of uh, economic development in small downtown central business districts and and a lot of mixed use type properties. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. Um, you know, a lot of times it's a it's a little some of these a lot of these. Um, I would say that in general we're finding that the greater Minnesota communities are more excited and more supportive of development or have lacked development in a lot of these areas. Um, and so when you are the town of um, Pipestone, Minnesota, and you haven't had a lot of development or new apartments built in a while, they're, they're pretty excited and supportive. Uh, when you're the city of Minneapolis and you have a ton of development going on, maybe not in these areas where the opportunity zones are, um, the resources and the time to devote or the attention or the speed at which things happen aren't necessarily the same. Um, and so that's been interesting to see just how supportive um, a lot of the greater Minnesota communities have been um, in, you know, getting projects going that, that were close but couldn't quite get going or um, that, that are needed um, but haven't drawn attention from outside investors. Yeah, in particular particularly in those smaller towns where you're able to command some more attention when you come in, I'm, I'm sure. And are you guys targeting, well, I guess you mentioned historic tax credit buildings. I mean, obviously in that situation, you're, you're targeting properties that need substantial improvement. Um, are, are you, for the most part, revitalizing buildings and, and substantially improving them? Or are you going to do uh, mostly new construction or, or will it be a little bit of both? What does the breakdown look like there? It's going to be a little bit of both, I'd say. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of these opportunity zones are, are fairly dense and built up and, and have a lot of empty storefronts and, you know, a lot of opportunities for redevelopment. So my experience is strongest in, you know, redevelopment and I love older buildings. And so I tend to be drawn to those types of projects. Um, so I think those could be commercial or residential um, rehabs um, but we also will be doing um, new construction and we're studying modular factory built multi-story multi-family projects um, we're studying modularized and SIPs construction and stick built so I don't think there's any one right answer to a lot of what we're going to end up doing um, but but given that construction industry is busy and prices continue to rise the the hard part about opportunity zones are the, that these projects have to cash flow and get a return for investors and you're ultimately looking to build housing in areas that haven't sustained housing or new development and so the question really becomes why will would somebody pay as much rent to live here as they would in the cool trendy part of town um so what makes this development so cool or so unique or so subsidized that it can work out and be affordable enough um, or just has X, Y, and Z that people really want and can't get anywhere else so they're willing to come live here. Right. Yeah. So, uh, the last couple of weeks here, I've, I've had uh, a couple different guests on who have had a community-driven element to their, to their experience in, in opportunity zone investing and, and real estate development and business investing. And I've asked them the same question I want to ask you now also, what can, for, for community leaders who are listening for mayor's offices or economic development teams within local communities, what can those 
local community leaders do to drive more capital into their opportunity zones and and get in front of more real estate developers and and fund sponsors like you? Sure. Um, and that is kind of the, I mentioned some uh, community engagement um, seminars that we had put on and that we call them Think Like an Investor Seminar. And it's about a four hour seminar, but I'll try to summarize it down. We do have some videos on our website too um, and on our YouTube page that, that show and, and we'll, answer some of them. And we'll, and we'll link to those uh, in the show notes for today's episode as well. Awesome. Um, so I would say that um, I, I recently saw uh, John Uphoff from the Benton County um, Economic Development Seminar give a really good presentation of kind of how they're putting together uh, development uh, in Benton County outside of St. Cloud, Minnesota. And ultimately, it's a lot like um, how you can be helpful to a developer or a, a fund um, is to think a lot like a developer or a fund. Um, and so the more that you can identify um, properties with historic character or that are empty or neglected, um, that, that wouldn't displace people but could be additive and if, Im if improved or with the right tenants or um, could make a very big impact on your community, the more that you can envision that. Um, think about the, the realities of renovation, resources to help with those renovations, um, you know, market studies. Um, pollution testing, um, phase ones, phase twos, pollution remediation, um, anything you can do to kind of advance that building and, and reduce um, friction as the developers look at the property. Um, TIF and uh, tax abatement, um, grants, the, all those things kind of help uh, get people excited and make the numbers work better. Um, so I would say that that thinking like a developer and, and trying to um, package that all together to say, hey, here's why we're a great community. We've got uh, these new you know, jobs that are coming to town. Um, we've got you know, this Rotary Club, this group that um, you know, helps with the schools. We've got Wonderful Hospital. We've got this new thing, $50 million in new roads coming through the county next year. Um, and this is why we need housing. So it's really about promoting uh, the community. Uh, showing the, the good things that are going on and, um, you know, even highlighting sites like here's site A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, this one's perfect for your manufacturing plant. This one we'd love to see uh, housing. Um, you know, here's the rents that people pay in this area. So just the more information you can give about your community and um, really packaging yourself up and letting people know you exist. And here's this major highway that comes through and we've got access to these resources and, you know, Here's the unemployment rate or average income, and here's why you should move here. All good tips. Thank you for, for sharing those for, for some of the community leaders who may be listening today. Uh, a little earlier, you mentioned uh, displacement, resident displacement, and that's been one of the parts of the, the Opportunity Zones program that, that people have used to, to attack the program for, for those that don't like it. Some, some critics say that the program may end up just leading to resident displacement not actually helping the residents who it's intending to uh to help um to that point what's what's your response how is your fund and, and how are you guys preventing resident displacement are is there some sort of i know you mentioned workforce housing is there an affordable housing component to your funds or, or are you aware of are you just keeping aware of um not displacing current residents 
Yeah, so I'll be the the first to admit that um, you know just doing a construction project or um, building something may or may not have any community impact whatsoever. And so we really look at like who occupies those buildings um, from a tenant perspective and from a commercial perspective as probably having a lot more impact on the community um, than actually the building of it. So the ongoing operations, the important part, um, we, we've we just made a commitment that we're not going to um, buy buildings and kick people out and displace residents. And so um, I would say that the people who have, uh, who use that as a, uh, a reason to say this is not a good program um, don't really understand the economics of the program that well. And that I think one of the blessings is that this program does not work well to displace residents because of the need for substantial rehabilitation. The peer numbers just don't make sense for displacing residents in most cases. Um, in that the economics of buying an apartment building or a rental unit um, at $90,000 per unit and putting $90,000 into it just clearly doesn't work out. Now, if you can, you know, say buy an apartment building and then build another apartment building next to it or add two more stories on top and upgrade the main floor, you know, units, like I'm not saying it can't happen. If there's, if, you know, if there's a way to do it, people will probably end up doing it. Um, but in general, the numbers don't really work out for displacing residents. Um, unless it's just a, you know, at, it's at the extremes, I'd say. Yeah, it doesn't work out. Um for those who want to take full advantage of the program, I guess, for within qualified opportunity funds. Uh, yeah. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen out there. It's just a different sector of the, like of the apartment economy is the value add sector, basically, which that would be the, the gentrifying sector of the economy, basically. Right. Uh, well, the IRS hasn't yet um, published its final regulations is there anything that you're waiting on before you move forward with any of these deals and projects or are you proceeding ahead uh, without the final regulations being published? We are proceeding ahead without the final regulations being published. Uh, we anticipate that much like a, uh, this will be a, a little bit of a moving target over the coming years as things are challenged and go through the court system. Um, we think we have a pretty good understanding um, and that it's firm enough that the type of investments that we want to do um, will firmly qualify. Um, we, that's how we feel right now anyway, as far as we've been led to believe. Um, I think that, um, you know, where some of the issues that we would like to see more clarification on come around. Um, you know, how much improvement do you need to make to raw land? Um, like you bought a piece of land for a dollar, like you have to do a dollar's worth of improvement. You have to build a million dollars worth of new buildings. Can you just clean it up from a pollution standpoint? Um, what are the minimums or maximums? Well, minimums really, um, that you would have to do with raw land. Um, it's, um, it seemed like the last uh, hearing had a lot more to do with people who wanted in and wanted the rules loosened and, um, you know, some and some around social impact. And since we have a focus on social impact, we feel pretty good about that and that we could um, meet um, any reporting requirements um, needed or actually we'll have to do that as a benefit corporation as it is. So 
Right. So you're already on top of that. And for, for real estate investing, a lot of the rules are already pretty straightforward. I think it was mostly the, uh, the business investing exactly. uh, people who, who, who really are interested and keen to receive some more guidance because there's a lot more questions surrounding business than there is real estate uh, at this time. So it, I, I, it likely does not affect you as much as it does some who are looking to do venture investing. Um, if I may be a little bit negative about the state of Minnesota right now, um, forgive me, but I I was looking at my tax conformity map uh, before our call here, and I, I noticed that Minnesota is one of the uh, roughly about a dozen states who have a capital gains tax that does not conform to the federal program. So in a way, anybody investing in in a Minnesota-based qualified opportunity fund faces a headwind, a 9.85% capital gains tax in the top bracket, at least. Um, are you aware of any efforts to get the state to conform to the Opportunity Zones program? Uh, uh, we have heard that, the, I mean, there is a tax conformity um, kind of push at the state capital to bring the state in compliance or in conformity with, with the tax changes in 2017 um, on a few different fronts. Um, and so, um, I guess my own personal belief um, is that uh, the state also has a, a very vested interest and a desire to see a lot more affordable housing created. Um, so I would like to see back to that scoring system or social impact rating system or affordability, um, some type of um, metric that allowed for that um, state forgiveness of tax, uh, so long as the projects actually met um, some kind of social impact score or um, affordability metrics. I think that added benefit would really help to drive uh, the affordable housing units um, or mixed um, affordability housing units that, that we need uh, really desperately in the state. So um, I'm hoping that the, the, the state can conform, um, you know, with the federal, with what they've done federally. Yeah, I would. I would love to see something like that. That the state says, "Well, make prove to us that it's worthwhile, and then we'll we'll give you the tax break as well." And I know there's some other states still working on this. Is um, in addition to Minnesota, there's you know other high income tax states like California and New Jersey and Pennsylvania are not conforming at the moment yet either. So it's a hurdle that uh, Minnesota's not alone in having to having to clear here, I suppose. Um, but hopefully, they get there. But now, uh, give give me the business case for investing in Minnesota, d despite the tax headwind. So, yeah, the business case for investing in Minnesota is that uh, we've got a really strong economy, um, really low unemployment rate. Um, we're expanding. There's a lot of great Fortune 500 companies here, a lot of entrepreneurs who are starting businesses. Um, there's a lot of great real estate investment opportunities um, in up-and-coming areas, and so I think that there are, you know, of all sizes, really, um, but some great cities and economies and stories um, where the local communities have bought in and have invested and want to see these um, deteriorating and dilapidated areas improved. And so we're identifying those areas and um, partnering with those communities, and it can really be a win-win-win. Uh, I think that, you know, the Minnesota has a... a a workforce, uh, a work ethic, um, and trustworthy, reliable people that um, we're proud of uh, and we think is unique. And 
generally, although we have some higher taxes, we'd say we're a, a high value add state um, that works and um, functions and is ethical and reliable. So it's a good place to do business. Yeah, you do have that that tax rate headwind, as I said, but but definitely a lot of good things going for Minnesota as well. Thank you for for sharing that with us. And hey, if, you, if the state can conform, all the better, right? But yes. either way, I think uh, the state of Minnesota has a lot of good things going for it. Uh, we're, I know uh, we're getting toward the end of our conversation here today, Lauren. Uh, thank you for for joining me. But uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you uh, if you had a a favorite investment of all time or favorite real estate deal of all time. Uh, anything that's really made an impact on you or, or stuck with you. And if, if you wouldn't mind sharing it with us. Yeah. Um, well, uh, as a member of the Northeast investment cooperative, uh, we worked together with a bike shop uh, to buy a building that was a, kind of a, a furniture store. They were selling used mattresses, cleaning bed bugs. I mean, it was the grossest place you've ever seen. It was a couple guys and a dog who lived in there and the bike shop ended up taking half the building and uh, the cooperative, bought a shell for $85,000 and had no plumbing or electricity or any utilities or mechanicals and ended up getting a tenant that's a cooperative brewery and then a German bakery that makes great pretzels. And so between bikes and bread and breweries, um, we got the hipster trifecta, the Star Tribune said. And so it's just uh, amazing to see, you know, when you take um, the worst building on a block and you make it one of the nicest, um, how transformational um, it can be, you know, the architects put together drawings and people on bikes outside in sport coats and whatever. And uh, when you start, you think that is the funniest looking thing I've ever seen. And uh, <laughs> when it's all said and done, you know, you walk down there someday and you go, I just saw two guys with, you know, suit jackets walk out of this place and they were at a, you know, NBA conference for whatever. And you go like, it all came true. Um, and so it's, it's really cool when you can see that uh, kind of transformational investment take place um because of you know community members investments so well that's great well lauren thanks again for joining us today before we go can you tell our listeners uh where they can go to learn more about you and the dream fund yeah you can google uh, minnesota opportunity zone advisors dream fund or our website is mn-oza.com great and i'll have links to learn more about the Dream Fund and Lauren on my website, the Opportunity Zones database at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Well, again, Lauren, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and I hope we chat again soon. All right, thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.